You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we begin, our gracious God, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word, that as a result of studying your word, that our hearts might be quick to obey and to love Christ. We pray that we would increase in our love for your dear son and our understanding of what he has done and our appreciation for you, our gracious Father, who have predicted all that is going to come to pass long before it ever did. We pray that you would fill our hearts with love for Christ and open our eyes to the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turning your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 5. I managed to find a book in the Bible not named John, and so we're going to go with Micah this morning. I'll give you a couple minutes to find that, Micah. It's one of the last 12 books of your Old Testament. You can get there two ways. You can either find Daniel and start turning forward until you come to Micah. You go through Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, and then Micah. Or you can start with Matthew, where we had our scripture reading, and turn backwards until you find the book of Micah. Are you there now, after all of that delay? The book of Micah and chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verse 2. Actually, verses 2 through the first part of verse 5. I'm just going to read verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Now, for how many of you is that a familiar verse? Probably everybody here because you see it in the Christmas cards. You hear it quoted at this time of year. That is a familiar verse, but I doubt that the book of Micah is a familiar book to most of us. And that's unfortunate because Micah is is a thrilling book with a lot of very interesting passages, and it is a delightful uh, one of the minor prophets. And as I read through it, I kept thinking to myself, I can't wait till I get to the end of the book of John and we can jump into Micah because that's what I wanted to do. But we're not going to be looking at Micah after John, because probably that feeling is going to wear off by the time we get done with John, and we're going to go on to whatever is next. It's unfortunate that Micah is so unfamiliar to us, because it is such a rich book. This verse is familiar, but it is surrounded by unfamiliar things. And one of the things that I like to do in preaching and teaching is to take passages that are familiar to us, at least they sound familiar, but they are surrounded by unfamiliar things, And then I like to look at the unfamiliar things so that the unfamiliar things become more familiar in order that that which is familiar to us becomes more meaningful. Does that make sense? It sounded like it made sense in my head before I said it. That's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at all of the unfamiliar things around Micah 5, verse 2, so that Micah 5, verse 2 might kind of jump forward for us with a little bit more familiarity and a little bit more meaning. So we're going to look at the entire book of Micah today. We're going to get a grand scope, a grand overview of the entire book. Then we're going to zero in on chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then specifically, we're going to zero in and focus in on verses 2 through 5 of, of uh, chapter 5. So kind of an overview of the entire book, and it sounds like probably to you that is a lot to bite off in one sitting. But fortunately, we have two sittings. We have tonight and Christmas Eve. So we're going to start looking at it tonight, and we're going to finish it up at our Christmas Eve service. So let's begin uh, by noting that this chapter 5, verse 2, that verse is the one quoted by Matthew that we looked at at the beginning of our, our time here this morning. 
what I want you to do is I want you to, I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 2, verse, what is it, 5 and 6, where Micah chapter 5, verse 2 is quoted. And I want you to look at Micah 5, 2. I'm going to read Matthew 2, 5 and 6. And you see if you can notice some things that are different between Micah and Matthew's quotation of Micah. Are you ready? You look at Micah 5, 2. Here's Matthew 2, 5 and 6. Remember, this is, let me set this up for you real quick. This is the wise men coming to Herod and saying, tell us where he has been born, the one who is called king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east. And then Herod called in the, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of the people. And being unfamiliar with the Old Testament scriptures, Herod said, tell us where he is to be born. The Messiah is to be born. And they knew immediately. They didn't have to study. They were able to quote uh, the book of Micah because they knew that the prophets predicted where the Messiah would be born. So that's the context. They said to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, quote, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you notice something that's different? Ma- Matthew's quotation is not exactly precise of what Micah said. And there seems to be a detail that, that Matthew added that you don't see in verse 2. And what is it? He will shepherd my people Israel. That's not in verse 2, but look at Micah chapter 5 verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock. You see that? Now what is Matthew doing? What Matthew is doing is he is, he is quoting quite loosely, uh, the, the essence of, Ma, uh, of Micah's prophecy. And he's sort of grabbing some phrases from Micah's prophecy. And by doing so and, and sort of, uh, grabbing an initial phrase and then an ending phrase, he's sort of capturing everything in between those two quotations. So Matthew is summarizing what Micah said about this coming ruler, that he would be a ruler and that he would be a shepherd and that he would arise from the town of Bethlehem. And he, he kind of pulls some phrases out of there to cite not just the one verse itself, but really the larger context. And that indicates to us that verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and the first part of verse 5 all have in mind this king, this shepherd who would arise out of the city of Bethlehem. So now let's take a look at the larger context of the book of Micah. And to do that, we're going to turn back to chapter 1, verse 1. And don't panic because we're not going to read the entire book, but we are going to catch some highlights as we work our way through. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. We want to understand a little bit about Micah and his times. And as we begin to appreciate the entire book, suddenly chapter 5, verse 2 will become even more meaningful. Verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, there's not a lot that we know about Micah. All that we know about Micah, we learn uh, really from this book, this short book. And almost everything that we know about Micah comes from verse 1. And verse 1 is loaded with a lot of information about Micah when he lived, uh, the times in which he lived, and, uh, and, and the gist of his prophecy, namely that it is going to, uh, toward Jerusalem and Samaria. The name Micah comes is a shortened firm, form of a longer name, Micaiah. Micaiah means, who is like Yahweh? It's a question. Who is like Yahweh? And that's what Micah's name means. Who is like Yahweh? We know that Micah, this Micah, is one of at least ten men in the Old Testament named Micah. He was from the town of Moresheth. And we know that the other men that we see named in the Old Testament, Micah, they're not the same as this man because we know the time in which this Micah lived. He lived, verse 1 says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now those are three kings of the southern kingdom who reigned in Jerusalem. And though Micah's prophecy is aimed toward both the northern kingdom, Samaria, which is mentioned in verse 1, and the southern kingdom, both kingdoms, 
He lived in Moresheth, which was about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, near a Philistine city of Gath. And that's where Micah lived, and he ministered during this time period of these three kings of Judah. These are the three kings in the southern kingdom. So remember, this is a, during a period of time when the kingdom was divided. You had the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. These three kings ruled in Jerusalem in the southern two tribes. They, they ruled consecutively, one right after another, and Micah kind of fits into the, their reign. From uh, 758 B.C. to 698 B.C., over a course of 60 years, that's when Micah lived. It was during that final king's reign, Hezekiah, that the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom, and they fell during the reign of, of Hezekiah, that third king. So that's the period of time in which Micah lived. Um, the, the other prophet that lived during that same period of time was Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries with one another. Every indication from both of their books is that they knew each other, and they probably knew each other well. They ministered at the same time. That A lot of the content of the two prophecies are very similar. Uh, Micah speaks of the Christ being born in Bethlehem. You remember it is Isaiah says, For unto us a, a son is born, unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. They both talk about the kingdom that would come. They both talk about the sin of the leaders in the nation at the time. Micah and Isaiah lived together. I mean, not, not in the same house, but, you know, lived together in the same region. They worked together both as prophets, and in all likelihood they knew each other and they knew each other well. Micah is also quoted by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter Jer- Jeremiah chapter 28. I think it's verse 16. Memory serves me. Um, it's quoted by people who are trying to save Jeremiah's life. And they quoted Micah saying, Did not Micah prophesy in the days of Hezekiah saying such and such, and yet we didn't stone him? And the argument was, since we didn't kill Micah for giving saying bad news about the nation, we shouldn't kill Jeremiah for giving us bad news about the nation. So even in the days of Jeremiah, which he lived a 100 years after Micah, they were familiar with the prophecy, they knew it, uh, and, and Micah was viewed as a prophet of God even only a hundred years later. So that's Micah and his uh, the, ta- the, the time in which he lived. Notice that he mentions two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria being the, ki- the capital city of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem being the capital city of the southern kingdom. So really, though the kingdom was divided, Micah's message is to the entire nation. There are pr- there are promises in here regarding the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are promises that are given to all of Abraham's descendants of a reunited kingdom. So really his message is towards both, not southern, not just the northern, but to all the Jews, because there are promises in here regarding the entire nation of the Jews reunited and regathered into the land. And we're going to look at some of those promises here in a moment. But both of these cities were corrupt. Both of them had leaders that were corrupt, kings that were corrupt, prophets and priests that were corrupt and wicked and perverse. And so all of the the indictment of the nation for their sin is aimed at all of the leaders of the nations, both the northern and the southern. As these two capital cities went, so goes the nation. You want to know what your nation is going to look like? Look at the capital city. As the capital goes, so goes the nation. That is depression right there, won't it? It will depress you. Okay, so let's move on. Now, now Micah's entire book can be divided up into three messages. Micah preached three messages, and it, it, it divides up really nice, actually. Chapters 1 and 2 are the first message. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are the second message. Chapters 6 and 7 are the third message. Each of these messages has its own unique theme. And I'm going to show you these in just a moment. But each message begins the same way. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. So it's kind of that thing to catch your attention. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And then look at chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. So there is this declaration at the beginning of each, beginning of each of these three messages where the prophet catches the attention of the people by saying, 
Listen to me. And that's how each message begins. Now, the theme of each message is a little bit different. The theme of the first message deals with the sin of the nation and indicts the religious leaders and the the prophets and the priests for their corruption and all of their varied sins. So look at, in chapter 1, back to chapter 1 now, look at verses 4 and 5, and you will see this announcement of coming judgment. That's what the first message is. It is an announcement of coming judgment. Verse 4, The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split, like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? See that that declaration of coming judgment? God is going to come. He's going to judge His people. And everything is going to melt. Everything is going to be destroyed. You're going to see this repeated all the way through the book. So the first message, an announcement of coming judgment because of their sin. The second message, the theme is just a little bit different. The theme of the second message is an announcement of the salvation that God has provided for those who will trust Him. And this is where the promise of the coming Messiah comes in, that second message. A child is going to be born in Bethlehem. He will be a ruler. He will shepherd my people, Israel. So there is the promise of salvation nationally in chapter 4. There is the promise of a coming ruler, king, shepherd in chapter 5. The second message is all about the coming and the announcement of this salvation that God offers. The third message is an appeal to the people to repent of their sin and trust in this God who is gracious and loving and kind. And that would involve humility. So look at chapter 6, verse 8. This is a familiar verse. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That appeal to humility is based upon the character of God in offering this great salvation that Micah spoke of in the second message. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. That's how the prophet ends his book with this this question, Who is like our God? Who is like our God that He is unchanging in mercy and He is forgiving and He is loving and He is kind and He will give truth to Jacob and He will tread underfoot our iniquities and will cast them away from Him because He will forgive. He delights in unchanging love. That's the picture of God in the end of the book. And the gist of the third message is people turn from your sin and repent and come to this God because He is gracious. And He will forgive. Because of His nature and because of His character, He is long-suffering and He will forgive. That's the message of the book of Micah. An announcement of coming judgment, an announcement of what God has done in salvation, and then an appeal to the people to repent and to turn from their sins and to embrace this God who is forgiving and loving and kind. Now, do you not notice that that is basically the outline of a good gospel message? You must first of all tell people that they are sinners and that they stand under the wrath of God, condemned justly by that good and righteous and holy God for their sin. And then you announce to them what it is that God has done to provide salvation for them. And then you appeal to people to respond to that with humility. To humble themselves, to repent and turn from their sin, and to embrace this God who is loving and kind and who will forgive their sins if they turn from Him. So Micah is a gospel message, a three-part gospel message in these three messages. I want you to look again at verse 18 of chapter 7. Look at the question that Micah asks. Who is like you? Who, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Do you remember what the name Micah means? Who is like Yahweh? And that's what his name means. And so how does he end his book? Who is like our God? That's the whole point of the book. Who is like our God? 
that in spite of all of the sin that he has talked about, all of that sin and iniquity, and all of the, the righteousness of God which would burn against that sin, who is like our God who delights in unchanging love, who does not retain his anger forever? That's the question that has left ringing in our ears. And of course, the invitation has left ringing in our ears. Come to this God. Come to this God and embrace Him and kneel before Him and bow before Him and humble yourself because He is loving and forgiving and He will forgive those who are penitent and turn from their sin and trust in Him. So that's Micah. Now we zero in. We don't have time to look at the whole third message or the whole first message, but now we're going to zero in on chapters 3 through 5. This announcement of salvation, of what God has done in salvation to His people. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, uh, and I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? These are the people who, of course, should know justice because they set themselves up as judges who would render justice to the people. And he says, should you not know what justice look like? looks like? You who are supposed to render justice on behalf of God's people. Verse 2, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up as for the pot and as meat in the kettle. And this is this is how the leaders treated the people. The people were oppressed because of what the leadership did, because of what the rulers of the nation did. And so this is an indictment to the nation for their sin. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. The first four verses are geared toward the rulers and the leaders of the people. And now specifically in verse 5 to the prophets. They lead people astray, saying, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare a holy war. Did you catch what he's saying? If somebody comes along to the prophets of the people and says, here, we'll give you bribes, we'll give you things, we'll supply what you need, we'll give you stuff for your teeth, they say, oh, this, this, these, these guys are at peace with us. And so, and so God is fine with them. And so be at peace with them. But if somebody does not give them something for their teeth, against him we're going to wage a holy war. Meaning what? That if you bought the prophets, you could gain their favor. But if you didn't, they would pronounce upon you a holy war. These prophets of the nation were false prophets, and all they were after was their own gain. Look at verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. You see what Micah is saying about the nation? Can you imagine a culture and a nation so corrupt that all of their political leaders do what they do for money and that justice goes to the highest bidder? Can you imagine a culture so corrupt where all of the religious leaders of the culture and of the church, of the group of, of the religious people of God, do what they do for financial gain? Can you imagine a, a culture so perverse that they abounds with false prophets and false teachers and everything that they do is for the sake of saying, it'll be okay with you. Don't worry about it. God's pleased with you. You don't need to do anything. God wants you to have your absolute best Friday every Friday of the best of your rest life for now and be the best you you can be. And that's the message of the religious leaders. Can you imagine such a situation? So perverse and so corrupt in every area of the nation and every area of the culture. This is what they faced. It's difficult to imagine that, I'm sure, but it's not difficult to imagine why God would want to judge such a nation. Right? Look at verse 12. Therefore, on account of you, that is, on account of the rulers, the prophets, and the priests, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Jerusalem will be leveled. 
That's what that means. It will be leveled. The destruction will be severe. Destruction will be absolutely total, and the destruction will be swift. It's going to be leveled and plowed like a field. Everything's going to be torn down and destroyed because of the sin of the people. But that would not be the end. Now, after indicting the people for their sin, chapter 4 begins with the promise of eventual, an eventual kingdom that all of the other prophets predicted as well. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. There is going to come a time when the nations will say, let's go to Jerusalem and listen to God teach us His Word. That has not happened yet, has it? That has not happened. This does not describe the church age. This does not describe any time, the time period now. We are not in this time period at all. This is going to happen in the future when the nations will literally go up to Jerusalem to hear God speak and to give to God worship and praise and to bring their offerings and their sacrifices to this God. That is a day that is coming. Verse 3, and he will judge, that is, God will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree and with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There's going to be a time of coming peace like we have never seen, never since the, since the fall in the garden. There's going to come a time of national and international peace of prosperity and abundant blessings. This is the picture that is given by the prophets of the coming millennial kingdom. When the Lord Jesus returns, He will set up a kingdom and He will establish the throne of His father David in Jerusalem. And He will rule there and He will reign. He will crush the nations with a rod of iron. That vision in that Daniel of the statue with the head of gold and the feet of iron mixed with clay and all the various metals in between. And at the end of that vision, a rock comes in, a stone, not carved out by hands, a stone comes in and crushes all of those kingdoms and they turn to dust like chaff and they are blown away and there is no sign that they ever existed. That is the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will come in, it will be a swift destruction of all the kingdoms of this world. And that Christ will set up His kingdom. And that Christ will establish the throne of David. And He will rule over that with a rod of iron and there will be peace and prosperity and blessing like the world has never, ever known before. That's the vision that... Micah gives. But before that happens, there would come a time when Jacob, when this nation of Israel would be in trouble. Look at verse 9. Now why do you cry out loudly, is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished, that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So they were looking forward to the Babylonian captivity. And here is God revealing through Micah, this nation, this this blessing, this kingdom of blessing is afar off in the latter days. But before that happens, you will go out of the city, you'll go into the field, you will be carried away to Babylon, and from there the Lord will rescue and redeem you. And the rest of chapter 4 describes that judgment and that humiliation. And then beginning in chapter 5, and here's at chapter 5 now, Here's the interest, an interesting thing about chapter 5. In the Hebrew text, chapter 5, verse 1, is included at the end of chapter 4. So in the Hebrew text, chapter 5 actually begins where verse 2 begins for us. So they include verse 1 with the material at the end of chapter 4. And I think that is right, and it, I wish it were that way in our Bibles, because it helps us kind of make a division. Verse 1 really belongs with the material in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, that's a bit of a taunt. 
The, the phrase daughter of troops really means somebody that is surrounded by troops. And the imagery is this. You are a weak city, a weak city and a weak nation, and these marauding bands of armies and troops just come against you and they lay siege to the city. And so the imagery is one of the city of Jerusalem surrounded by troops. And God says to them, muster your troops, daughter of troops, you who dwell in the midst of foreign armies who all want to overtake you. Muster an army. It's a bit of a taunt. They couldn't muster an army. That was the point. They were laid up in siege. And God is taunting them, saying, why don't you muster an army and fight against them, O daughter of troops? And they would, in verse, the end of verse 5, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And that judge of Israel is probably King Zedekiah, the ruler of the nation uh, in Jerusalem. During that siege when the Babylonians came against Jerusalem, it was King Zedekiah who was king in Jerusalem. And they took Zedekiah out. He snuck out of the city at night and tried to escape, but they ran him down in an open field. And when they caught him, uh, they humiliated him. And that phrase being uh, smitten or struck on the cheek, in that context, in a Middle Eastern context like that, that was the most humiliating thing that could happen, is to have somebody slap you in the face up alongside your cheek. It was a personal humiliation. I have no doubt that this happened literally, that Zedekiah was abused, but it also is a very vivid picture of the type of humiliation that the king, the prince of Israel in that day, would experience when he was overtaken in the field. And the story is told in Second Kings chapter 25 where the author says, They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Now about now you're saying to yourself, Jim, this is quite a Christmas message. He brings us here the day before, the Sunday before Christmas and we have to hear about people having their sons slaughtered before their eyes and their eyes gouged out and being dragged away to foreign cities in chains. But all of that brings us to the prophecy in chapter 5, verse 2. And now you understand the context. Now let's look at chapter 5, verse 2. And we're going to notice three things about Micah's Messiah. Number one, that he would be a sovereign, that is a ruler, that he would be a shepherd, and that he would be a savior. First, he will be a sovereign. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now there's a contrast here. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The emphasis, the the focus, at least in part of this verse, is on Bethlehem Ephrathah and the significance of that city. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, and it it describes a place of sustenance and provision and abundance. Ephrathah is another word that means fruit fields or fruitful fields. Ephrathah was actually the name for Bethlehem before it became named Bethlehem. So that town that existed long before it was named Bethlehem was named Ephrathah, which meant fruit fields. And then they renamed it Bethlehem. And there was another Bethlehem in the northern part of the nation. And so Micah here is telling us which Bethlehem it is, specifically from which the Messiah would come. It wouldn't be the Bethlehem in Galilee. It would be Bethlehem, which was previously called Ephrathah. And what's interesting about that is that the one who would be born in Bethlehem himself would claim to be the bread of life. So we would have the bread of life that would be born in the house of bread. And the one who claimed to be the, the living vine would be born in the city named Fruitful Fields. There's a bit of an imagery there that's being being communicated. He is the one who is the living bread. He is the one who is the vine born in the house of bread in the fruitful field. Bethlehem Ephrathah. From that city, Bethlehem Ephrathah would come forth this ruler. Now here's something significant about Bethlehem as a city. It was too little, too small to be included amongst the official registry of cities in the nation of Judah. And you find that in Joshua chapter 15 and Nehemiah chapter 11, where these cities were listed. And the Jews would look to those two passages of Scripture for these city lists. And Bethlehem is not mentioned in any of them. 
And that seems to be the indication here by Micah that this, this city is so small and so insignificant in terms of a human perspective that it's not even included among the list of cities in the nation of Judah. But Bethlehem was known for one very significant thing. And do you remember what it was? King David was born in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, which had been too small to even be included among the clans of Judah, even included in the list of official registry of the cities, out of Bethlehem had come King David. And so Bethlehem came to be known as the origins or the house of David. That's where David came from. David was a shepherd. And out of Bethlehem had come David and all of his line. And so out of Bethlehem had really come the entire line which was now ruling in the city of Jerusalem. That It was that Bethlehem. Now there's something else significant about Bethlehem and, and from Micah's perspective, why, why Bethlehem would sound very odd to the nation of Israel as they would hear his prophecy. Do you think that anybody in Jerusalem, that anybody in the nation of Israel would have expected Bethlehem to be the place where the Messiah would be born? They wouldn't. And do you know why? Where was the line of David at the time that Micah wrote this? Where did they rule? In Jerusalem. So if you were going to predict where the greater son of David would be born, the rightful heir to David's throne, if you were going to predict that and expect that, what would you predict or expect? That it would be where? In Jerusalem. That he would be born in the city of David. That the son of David, the greater son of David, would be born in David's city, Jerusalem. Not necessarily in Bethlehem. But the fact that it is predicted that this would be in Bethlehem would indicate to the people at that time that something odd would happen between Micah's prophecy and the birth of this ruler in Bethlehem. And something odd did happen, something unexpected. The Babylonians came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they sacked it. And from uh, from the perspective of visible appearance, the line of David and the kingdom of David vanished. It, from a human perspective, was no more. There was no throne in David. There was no line of David in Jerusalem. There was no kingdom in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was born. You know who ruled Israel? Rome ruled Israel. And they had their puppet king, Herod the Great, who was not a Jew and not a descendant of David, but an Edomian. He ruled in Jerusalem as Rome's uh, uh, vassal, their puppet king in Jerusalem. The line of David had, for all intents and purposes, vanished visibly from Israel. Micah knew this. Micah knew that the king wouldn't be born in Jerusalem. Micah predicted the king would be born in Bethlehem. And that's the exact opposite of what anybody would have expected in the day. From you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, will go forth from me a ruler. And this ruler is to be contrasted with the ruler mentioned in verse 1. This ruler is not like the ruler mentioned in verse 1. In verse 1, the ruler is smitten on the cheek. He's struck on the face. Uh, he is humiliated. He suffers defeat. Uh, that is not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. The prince mentioned in verse 1 is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The ruler mentioned in verse 2 is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is contrasted with his humiliated prince in verse 1. Now you say, but the Lord Jesus was humiliated. He was, but not as, uh, not as the one who reigned in Jerusalem. He was not on David's throne. He was not ruling and reigning as king in Jerusalem when he was humiliated. He came the first time as king of the Jews, and he suffered humiliation, and he was crucified and dead and buried and raised again, but this humiliation that is described in verse 1 applies to Zedekiah. Micah does not have in view here the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a contrast. The prince of Israel will be struck on the cheek. But this coming ruler, he will rule with a rod of iron. And he will smite his enemies. And he will tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God upon the nations for their sin and their rejection of him. This ruler would come and he would reign. And he would not suffer humiliation as a ruler. Not as a king. He would take the throne of his father David. And he would never be defeated. He would never be sieged. He would never be humiliated. 
This ruler is also contrasted with the other rulers mentioned in chapter 3. Do you remember that? Remember the rulers mentioned in chapter 3? They were the ones who were wicked and perverse and corrupted their calling. Whereas, whereas the rulers of Micah's day had perverted their calling and failed to do what God had called them to do, this ruler would never do that. This ruler would never do that. So there's a contrast between what the people were experienced with, what they, what they were familiar with, and this coming ruler, this coming ruler who would rule perfectly for God in his stead. Now look at verse 2 again. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth to me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Now put yourself in Micah's historical context. Micah is looking forward to the coming of this king who would be born in Bethlehem. But Micah, while he is predicting that this one would be born in the future, can look back and say his goings forth are from long ago. Now, this is one of those passages of Scripture that indicate to us the pre-existence of this child who would be born in the manger in Bethlehem. He, he, he is yet future to Malachi, but Malachi can say, but his goings forth have been from long ago. And the word goings forth really means his activities or his workings or his issuings forth. Do we see the Lord Jesus active in history before Malachi's time? We do. We see him at creation. We see him appearing as the angel of the Lord. We see him providentially dealing with the nations in all of their details. We see all of these ways in which this person who would be born was already at work. He is goings forth and his workings, his providential handlings of all these things have gone from ages long ago, from eternity past. Now, though Micah does not say the one born in Bethlehem will be God in human flesh, He does give us information that indicates that that is exactly what would happen. That this one who would be born in Bethlehem would be one who pre-existed his existence. That doesn't make sense. Who pre-existed his birth in Bethlehem. And pre-existing his birth in Bethlehem, he would have already have been active from ages past, from long ago. uh, Who is this one? This is the Lord Jesus Christ who obviously pre-existed his birth here. We've seen this in John, haven't we? That he was the Word The Word was with God. The Word was God. That Word became flesh. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father, let me receive the glory that I had with you before the world began. He existed before ever an atom was spoken into existence. He existed back then. He created everything that was to be created and all things that exist. And he has been working in his creation all of this time. And Micah says, this one will be born in Bethlehem. And it should not surprise us that Micah would tell us that this man who would be born, this one who would be born, would be God and he would be a king because he already told us in chapter 4 and we read the verses that he, God, in that kingdom will judge between peoples and he, God, will rule over them. Look at the end of verse 7. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. Where and when will God reign in Jerusalem? In that kingdom that is coming. He will reign in Jerusalem. God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit on that throne and he will judge between the nations and he will issue his judgments and he will rule and he will reign and administer a perfect kingdom. That's the promise. So he will be a sovereign. He will be a ruler. Now I want you to look at the fact that he will be a shepherd in verses 3 and 4. We'll move on past verse 2. Well, something I should mention before we go on to the fact that he is a shepherd. Do you notice that every time we look at the Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming of Christ, that the fulfillment of those prophecies is always literal? You notice that? We don't spiritualize and say, well, Bethlehem really isn't Bethlehem. Bethlehem is really just a picture of the church, and this is a metaphor of that, and it's a symbol of this, and this is an allegory for that. 
That's not how we treat Old Testament prophecies. All the prophecies regarding the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ were fulfilled literally exactly as they were written. I believe that God has already told us how it is that we are to interpret Old Testament prophecy by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy literally. So now as we look forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't say all of these prophecies regarding His second coming, they're to be interpreted differently than all of the prophecies regarding His first coming. No, all of His prophecies regarding His first coming are fulfilled a certain way so that we might know how it is that we ought to expect all of the prophecies regarding His second coming to be interpreted. So as we look forward to what the prophets have predicted, and we we read these passages regarding the kingdom and the rule and the reign of this Messiah, we don't begin to allegorize them and spiritualize them and try and make them metaphors and what are we, what is really going on here? Is it, does it really, is it really peace? Is it really David's throne? Is it really in Jerusalem? Or is Mount Zion a picture of something else? We don't do that. Why? Because everything that has been fulfilled up to this point has been fulfilled exactly as it was written. And that's why we expect the same to happen and to take place with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, He is a Savior or Sovereign. And he is a shepherd. He is a shepherd. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until that time, when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. He will be a shepherd. This is a prophecy regarding the nature of Christ in terms of him being a shepherd for the people. So he would be born in Bethlehem, which was a shepherding town, kind of known for its shepherds, known for its sheep, known for its pastures which surrounded it. You remember at the at the birth of Christ, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and where were they? In that very region around Bethlehem, out in their fields, watching over their flocks by night. David, who was a shepherd, came out of the house of bread as a shepherd for the nation of Israel, and so would this coming king. He would likewise would be a shepherd for the nation. And so verse 3 says, He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. I think that refers to the Virgin Mary. God would do something to the nation. He would give them up, and I think to judgment, He would give them up until this time when she who is with child has borne this child, who was to be born in Bethlehem, back in verse 2. Then the remainder of His brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now Micah predicts, uh, prophesies, a return of people to the nation, to the sons of Israel. What return is this? There are really only three possibilities. It's either the return of the nation out of Babylon, which Micah had already predicted would happen, that they would go into Babylon. It's either the return of the people out of Babylon prior to the birth of Christ, which took place under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Malachi and Nehemiah and, and those men. Or it refers to the ingathering and the bringing in of all of the Gentiles out of the flocks and out of the folds into the flock of God, which Jesus spoke of in John chapter 10, when he said, out of other folds I have sheep and I will bring them in as well. So it either refers to the gathering of the nation before the birth of Christ, the activity of the shepherd in gathering peoples to himself, or it refers to the regathering of the entire nation to Israel prior to the Lord Jesus Christ setting up this kingdom that Micah spoke of in chapter 4. Which of those three is it? There might be more than one fulfillment to the passage. I don't think it's describing the ingathering of the flock of God that's taking place now as people are being called to Him simply because it speaks of gathering in people and them returning, returning to the sons of Israel. You can't say that of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were never part of that community. To be called in as a Gentile is not to return. It is to come in for the first time. So I believe that this is, this is predicting the final ingathering of the people of Israel, not only into their land, into their land themselves prior to this king returning and setting up this kingdom. He would gather the people in in preparation for this kingdom. Now, is that what is happening right now since 1948 the Jews came back and took their land? I don't know if that's the case or not. 
Maybe the Jews will be kicked out of their land another thousand years will go by. Then they'll be gathered in and the Lord will return. I don't know. But I do know this, that before the Lord establishes that kingdom, He will gather in His people again and they will return. And they will return to Him. You realize that there will come a time when the nation of Israel looks on Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for His only son. Zechariah said that. There will come a time when He returns and the nation of Israel will say, what have we done? What have we done? We crucified the one whom God sent to us. And they will mourn and they will weep and they will repent. And in that gathering in, he will, be, he will be bringing in national Israel, saving them prior to the establishment of this kingdom, which Micah speaks of in chapter 4. All right, that's the, that's the gathering in. Now, there is a contrast here with his shepherding work. Verse 4, he will rise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the Lord his God. He will shepherd the nation, not as just a normal man shepherds, shepherds, but he would shepherd the nation as if empowered by God himself. This would be God's work of shepherding. God raised up David as shepherd to shepherd the nation of Israel, and he did it. And God will raise up a greater son of David out of the house of bread to shepherd the nation of Israel, and he will do it. In the meantime, we know him to be the good shepherd because John chapter 10 says that, so we're familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ being that good shepherd, that he is our shepherd. He gathers us in. He cares for us. He provides for us. He, he, he protects us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. He is, he is bringing us in. He will not lose any of us. But in the future, there will come a time when he will also shepherd the nation. And this refers to that kingdom. He will serve not only as king, but like David, he would serve as a king who would shepherd and guide and teach and, 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 and nourish and cherish his people. That is why the nations will come and say, let us hear God's word from God himself. And they will come up to Jerusalem to hear whom? To hear the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will give ear to him. They will hear God speaking to them. The nations will. As he shepherds and leads the entire world in this kingdom. Glorious promises. Chapter four, uh, Verse 4, the end of the verse says, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Now, there, there is in Old Testament prophecy, like this passage that we're looking at, verses 2 through 4, there is sort of a mingling of these two comings. Have you noticed this? That Micah kind of talks about things that are, that are in his period of time, and then he talks about something way far off, and then something that would happen between his period of time and the way far off time. And even in describing the birth of this king, he speaks of things that would happen that are, are kind of mingled. We have to see a mingling of the things that coming his first coming and his second coming. He would shepherd, which we normally associate with his first coming. He would be a king, which we normally associate with his second coming. And there's kind of a blending of details in, in Micah's prophecy. But that's typical of Old Testament prophets. Often we read through the Old Testament prophets and we say, well, that phrase really describes Christ in his first coming. And this phrase really describes Christ in his second coming. And sometimes we try and pull those apart. I don't think we should always try and pull those apart because it is true that Christ, when he came in his first coming, he came as king of Israel. He came as the king. And at the same time, he was a shepherd. And when he comes back as king, we will recognize him as king and we will also receive him as our shepherd and enjoy the benefits of him being our shepherd. So these are mingled because the person and the work of Christ, though we see them unfolding over the course of God's plan of redemption, these elements are, are all kind of mingled together because you, you can't just say, well, he's king now and he's shepherd then. It doesn't work that way. It, he is the great shepherd king. Everything that we can picture David being as a shepherd and a king, Christ is infinitely perfectly in every way. Infinitely perfectly. So we recognize that he is a, according to Micah, he is a sovereign and he is a shepherd. And third, he is a savior. And that is the beginning of verse 5 which this is another one of those verse divisions that we just kind of wish would, would go away. 
The very first phrase of verse 5 says, this one will be our peace. That is the salvation that he will bring. Now, the rest of verse 5 refers to something else. Micah kind of jumps out of the prophecy regarding Christ. But this one who would be born in Bethlehem, who would shepherd the flock of God in the strength of the Lord and the might of his name, that one will be our peace. And that refers to the salvation that he would bring. So he is a sovereign, he is a shepherd, and he is a savior. And we'll look at the savior element of that on Christmas Eve. Let's just simply recognize this morning that you cannot have him as your shepherd and you cannot have him as your king unless you know him as your savior. You must have him as your savior or you will never know him as your king. You will never enjoy the blessings of the kingdom that he is going to set up and that he has promised. And you cannot possibly know him as your shepherd. You have to receive him as savior and Lord first. Uh, The promise of the angels was that today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. He came to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel told Joseph. He's going to come to deliver his people from their sins. If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, the only thing you can expect is the rightful wrath of God for you, against you, for your sin. Because you stand under his wrath. You've violated his law. You've broken his Ten Commandments. You have, you, have, you have heaped up for yourself judgment for the day of judgment, wrath for the day of judgment. But God has provided a way by which you might be saved and you might be delivered from your sin. But you must come to God on his terms. This shepherd was born in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death to atone for the sins of all who will place their faith in him. And if you will turn from your sin and repent and trust Jesus Christ for salvation, he will cause you to be born again. He will forgive your sins and he will take you to heaven and make you righteous in his sight, make you his child. But we must come to the offended king on his terms because he is the offended one. He is the offended party. And so we come to him on his terms and that is repentance and faith. So we turn back now to chapter 7, verse 18. I'll just read these words to you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. So who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? That he would provide a sovereign king, a shepherd for his sheep, and a savior for sinners. There is no God like our God. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have indeed provided salvation for your people. Thank you that that was your plan from eternity past, and you announced it through the prophets, and you anticipated it all the way through the Old Testament revelation, that your your people would have their sins forgiven and atoned for through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for such a gracious salvation. We thank you that in your mercy and grace, You have opened the eyes of your people to see that. We pray that you would do that for those here who may not know Christ as Savior and may have not trusted him yet uh, as Lord and as Savior. May they find their sins atoned for in Christ and may you draw them to you by your grace and by your providence. May you be glorified in saving many people, many sinners, that uh, your grace may be magnified for all of eternity. And we will thank you in the name of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.